Good morning, church. Man, isn't it great that our past doesn't define us? That Jesus Christ defines us. And because we live in the light, we live with Jesus Christ, he's renamed us, called us his sons and daughters. That's what God calls us. And so together we gather as a family of God this morning to celebrate all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And we live into the promises that he's given us, doing our very best to be the light wherever we can be light. No matter where we find ourselves, we want to look and be Jesus. We want to look like him. We want to love on others. We want to spread that message of renewal and hope that only Jesus can offer. So thanks for being here this morning to do just that together as family. And I know we've got some new faces in our audience today as well joining us online. Thank you for being a part of our time together. We would love for you to consider Crosspoint your home. If you're looking for one, we'd love for you to join us in retelling that story of hope that is Jesus Christ. Well, today we're diving into our last uh, message from Fixer Upper. And if you've got your Bible, Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and we'll eventually make our way to Ephesians chapter 5. Get those Bibles out, and let's dig into the Word of God to discover how He's called us to live in partnership with one another as uh, marriage unfolds, continues on the journey uh, together. It's such an exciting time to be a part of God's church being light in lots of different ways, uh, and one of those ways is how to have that godly marriage. And over the last four weeks, we've dug into God's word to discover how he's called us to live in that context as husband and wife. And as we journey together, uh, we're reminded the blessing that we have having one another for the journey. I want to start out this morning by asking a question. How many of you here this morning have ever been married or are currently married? Raise your hand. How many of you would love to be married someday, maybe or remarried one day? That would be good too, yeah. So that's most of us in here have kind of hit, you know, as we get into this idea of being married, I mentioned this earlier, no one on any given day, you know, the head just doesn't pop off the pillow and say, today I'm going to ruin his life. That's what's going to happen. Today is the day. Nobody wakes up on any given morning and says, today is the day that I really make her cry. That's my goal. Nobody wakes up doing that. I mean, it's kind of an ease into those moments, isn't it? I mean, it just doesn't happen right off the bat. And so there are moments where we have to consider and think through how we're living in the light as God has called us to live in the light. You've experienced this looking at your friends and maybe family too, maybe in your, your office with other coworkers. You've seen moments where that tragic moment happens and, and that emotional affair in the office context took place. Or, or maybe someone confided in you an addiction to pornography. Or heaven forbid, maybe, maybe you've seen what adultery can do to a marriage. Those things don't just happen overnight. It's slow and subtle. And that's exactly how Satan wants to work it. He wants to isolate us as people of God. He, he wants to remind us that, that really we're not perfect people, so why play the part? That maybe God calls you one thing, but the truth is you're something totally different. And what we realize through our own life is that every single decision that we make today, good or bad, has a ripple effect in our life. That it challenges folks sometimes who live around us and sometimes that person is our spouse. Sometimes it's our kids. Sometimes it's our extended family or even our church home. There are moments 
when things happen that create ripples in a negative way and we don't want that to happen. No one wakes up on any given morning and says, this is the day that this is going to take place. We kind of see that as our story begins to unfold in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's interesting to watch how Adam and Eve interact with sin and God and Satan and the garden and how all of that really plays out. I want to start with chapter 2 of Genesis, reading uh, verses 24 beginning. It says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Adam and Eve realized, recognized that they were naked, but they felt no shame. What we discover along the way is when sin comes into the world, shame and guilt are close behind. All three of those are part of a family unit. And what we discover along the way is when Satan comes into the garden scene and creates a temptation-type moment, we find that shame enters the picture as well. Now, here in chapter 2, we see that Adam and Eve felt no shame. That Hebrew word, when you pronounce it, it's the word bosh. Say that with me. Bosh. Let's do that again. Bosh. It's just fun saying Hebrew words. I love saying Hebrew words. But it really means to feel completely worthless. Now, I want you to think back in your own life. How many of you in here have ever felt ashamed? How many have you ever felt guilt for something? Yeah, every single person in here. It's just part of the world that we live in. We all have felt shame and guilt somewhere along the way. And it's all because of this thing called sin that's in the world today that we have to battle against each and every day. We look at Adam and Eve and they don't feel any guilt. They feel no shame. They're not giggly. But when sin enters the world, so does shame and guilt. We take a look at this moment with Adam and Eve and the creation story. It's a beautiful picture. God creates this enormous garden for them to live in. All the animals are there, every created thing, every delicious fruit and vegetable you could possibly think of. There was no fear in the garden because no animals were attacking each other. Everything was absolutely perfect. Can you imagine that? What that might have felt like? No fear, no animosity, nothing but the glory of God in that moment. And he puts Adam and Eve in this garden, and it's thousands of acres, we're going to assume. Everything is in the garden that needed to be. And God says, you can go anywhere, you can do anything you want to. You can take naps or not take a nap. You can stay up late, go to bed early. Whatever you want to do, it's all open and available, except this one thing. The Bible says that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the Bible as well as the tree of life. And they're both planted in the middle of the garden. And God says, out of everything in the garden, you can do anything you want. Except for that one tree, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to look at it. I don't want you to go near it. I don't want you to climb the tree. I don't want you to take a nap under the tree. I don't want you to build a tree house in the tree. Don't carve your initials in the side of the tree. Initials, I guess it would have to be Adam and Eve. They didn't have a last name. But anyway, 
The point is, Jesus said, or God says, rather, don't go near the tree. Stay away. Now, we don't know how long they were in the garden. Ten years, a hundred years, a millennium. We, we just don't know a time. But at some point in the story, Satan comes on the scene. And he tempts Eve, who goes to the tree, who takes the fruit and eats of it, disobeying God. And then she pulls Adam in. Adam does nothing to stop the situation and just goes along with Eve and the two of them disobey God. And in that moment, sin enters the world along with shame and guilt. Take a look at chapter 3 in our story, beginning in verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. I guess Adam said, somebody needs to wear the plants in this family. <laughs> I got more. I got more. Be careful. <laughs> Courtesy loud. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. You see, Adam and Eve were hiding because they had shame and they had guilt for disobeying, for not doing what they should be doing. Those of us that have kids and grandkids, you know this to be true with human nature. When a child does something that they're not supposed to do, when they get that extra cookie off the kitchen counter and you've said no a hundred times, then what do they do? They typically go to another part of the house or outside to eat the cookie. They're in hide mode. When they shove their, their sibling take that toy away from them, what do they do? They run to a different part of the house and they hide because they know they've done something wrong. They have some guilt in the moment. When they're filling their diaper, they're underneath the dining room table, right? Because they're hiding. <laughs> so they're doing something they're maybe ashamed of. They shouldn't be doing. And you know, adults are no different. We hide too. We end up doing things that, that God specifically said, hey, I don't want you to be a part of this. It's not in the light. I want you to be in the light. And when we find ourselves there, we withdraw, don't we? We kind of pull back. We isolate ourselves, which is exactly where Satan wants us. He wants us to be alone, without help. We hide because we feel shame. You see, Satan uses shame to connect the act to our identity. God does something totally different. He says, you're a child of mine. You're created in my image. I love you. I'm going to pursue you through all of time. You've made some poor choices, but that's not who you are. Who you are looks like me. And Satan says, you've done something bad, so you must be bad. You're not a good person. And Satan takes that shame and that guilt, and he kind of rubs it in our faces. And we're afraid of that in our marriage context many times, I think. There, there are moments when we have done something maybe we shouldn't have, and we're, we're ashamed, and we feel the guilt of that. And we say things like, you know, I can't tell you about that because then you'll know I'm bad. And if I'm bad, then you're not going to love me. I feel guilty about what I've done. But if I'm honest about that, if you realize I've broken some trust, then it's going to be a place of not 
having any trust and a rebuilding process. And so instead of bringing the intimacy of truth to marriage, we live in secrecy. And we push people away that want to journey with us and help us and bear our burden. And what we discover along the way is that secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. Keeping things in the dark, keeping them secret is the enemy of intimacy. Now, there are ways around that, ways that we can kind of remedy that. And we started talking about the very first thing in week number one in this series where we said, we're going to make God our one and our spouse our two. And if we will commit to that kind of primacy in our relationships, everything else is going to fall into place if we make sure that God is our one and our spouse is our two. Week number two, we talked about pursuing our spouse, continuing to date them, to run after them, just like Jesus has run after us in a relationship with him. I'm going to keep pursuing my two. Last week, we made the promise that marriage is going to be about we and not about me. Marriage is going to be about the two of us coming together in relationship and forging ahead just exactly how God designed it. And today I want to talk about the promise of confiding rather than hiding. That we're going to confide in our two rather than hide from our two. I mean, Paul points the finger and he says, listen, you were different people before you got to know Jesus. You are absolutely different people before Jesus. And as he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, that very first part of verse 8, Paul says, you once were full of darkness. There was no light in you. Before you said yes to the King of Kings, before you fully surrendered to the Son of God, before you said yes to the one man who could give you hope and change your life forever, before that ever happened, you lived in darkness. You kind of groped around just feeling your way through life because you didn't have direction. You didn't know where you were. Jesus is that light, but you, before Jesus, lived in darkness. How many of you have ever been spelunking? Anybody know what spelunking is? Cave diving, exploration? When the boys and I were, uh, lived in Kansas City, we were in Boy Scouts together, and our troop went down to southern Missouri. There's a lot of good caving in southern Missouri. Went down to there and camped out for the weekend. Went into and checked out this massive cave that was there in front of us. And it's very interesting. It's a constant temperature inside, but it's usually pretty damp inside. And so you've got your headlamp and your helmet and your clothes. You don't mind getting dirty. And so you're kind of walking back in the cave with two or three or four at a time. You're crawling over these huge boulders that are in the way. You're kind of shimming around some of those rocks. Eventually, you're all the way down on the ground because the ceiling is so low and you're kind of walking through, or crawling through rather the space until you get to the very back of the cave and everybody turns their head lamp off and it is pitch dark. You can't see your, your hand in front of your face. Can't see the white of your eyes. You can't see the, the pearly white smile on your partner's face. I mean, it is just dark. And you're hoping that your light comes back on. And Paul says, before you met Jesus, before you said yes to him, that's how your life was. That's exactly how it looked. But praise God because of Jesus' church that we have been made new. Amen. That we have life 
and life in the abundant because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. God doesn't hold our sin against us. He's given us light in order to live by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's interesting at times in our life where we've said yes to Jesus Christ and light. Sometimes we step back into the darkness. Sometimes we move toward the type of life that God's not called us to live. Spiritually, we're right with Jesus, but practically, we're moving toward the darkness and engaging in old ways. I liken it to maybe moments when, when you've been to the, to the movie, movie theater. How many have you been to a movie theater? Raise your hand. Yep, every one of us, we, we know what that's like. You buy the ticket, you go through the, uh, the common area there, and you finally enter uh, the, the movie uh, place where you're going to, the, the, the room where you're going to watch the movie. The door shuts, and it's pretty dark. You kind of wait about 30 seconds, let your eyes adjust a little bit, and then it's not so dark. Then you kind of find your way to your seat. And sometimes in our life, that's how it is, is that we move to some darker areas, and we just kind of wait, and it doesn't seem so dark after all. It can't be too bad. I can kind of see my way around a little bit. And sometimes when things aren't working well in our marriage, it's because we've made a decision to move closer to the dark rather than living in the light. And Paul addresses this again in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. He says, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. And Paul admonishes us, people who have said yes to Jesus, to live in the light. Earlier in that chapter, in verse 3, he says, Let there be no sexual immorality, no impurity, no greed among you. Such sins have no place amongst, among God's people. One version says, Don't even let there be a hint of impurity. Because impurity is poison. And it will take you to a place that you really don't want to be. The second year of our ministry, youth, youth ministry in Overland Park, Kansas, we uh, used this campground in the middle of Missouri. And uh, we took the whole youth group there, we had about 200 kids in our youth group, and had a big staff to kind of work with them all, all week long, like we always do. Well, one particular evening, we decided to play hide-and-seek with the youth group, and we gave every staff member a monetary value. So all the staff went out and hid all over camp. And then when it was the time, then the students were released to go find those particular staff members. And Robin had gone to the edge of the wood line and there was a path there. She just stepped off. It was dark already. She stepped off and she kind of hunkered down on her, on her elbows and her knees in this green patch and she kind of hid herself there. I don't even think she was actually uh, discovered uh, throughout the course of the game, if I remember right. We finally called everybody in. We had a devotional, a prayer, and then everybody kind of went to bed. And the next morning, Robin got up, and she was just in hives. I know. I like that. That's nice, Robin. I feel sorry for you. <laughs> Robin is very allergic to poison ivy, but in the dark, she couldn't see 
where she was going. She hunkered down in that poison ivy, and for the next two weeks, it was just terrible for her. She got the shot. She took some medicine. She was getting up at 2 a.m. every morning to go through the shower and put the scrub on. I mean, it was just, I felt so sorry for her. I moved to the couch and let, no, I'm just, that's not true. <laughs> but sometimes we move toward things that God has said, this isn't going to be good for you. It's, a, it's, a, it's not right. You're not living in the light. There are moments when you and I make decisions in our relationships, especially in the context of marriage, and it doesn't end well because for whatever reason, we thought that was going to be the way to go. One of those areas that you may have experienced before in your family or your friend group or coworkers at work, sometimes in marriage, we see the adultery line way out there. It's way out there. I don't need to worry too much about it. We plot it out, but we don't realize that the sin line is actually closer to you than the actual event. I mean, Jesus alludes to this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, beginning, Jesus says, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says not the act, just the look is poison ivy. It's trouble. The line for so many of us in our marriages is in the wrong place. And we're arguing and we're struggling and we're going back and forth about what, what life should look like and how it should be. Rather than living in the light, we've allowed our eyesight to become adjusted to the dark. We're groping around trying to figure out how things should be. How could they get to this point? 20 years in youth ministry, this is a common question with our youth group, and my guess is our youth group would ask the same question at time, and now that I said youth group, they all kind of went, oh, phone down. They always ask me, Tim, where is the line? And the line for anything. How close can I get to making out with my girlfriend before it's too far? How far can I go to stand up to my parents on something I feel passionate about without it being dishonoring to them? What can I do in my life that would not be sin but get me as close as I can? What would happen if I told them where the line was? Well, they'd be all over the line, wouldn't they? Just like me and you would be. Adults are really no different and Jesus referred to this kind of idea all the time about living in the light and staying away from the darkness. Many times he taught and preached in hyperbole, which simply means that he's making a grandiose statement that isn't necessarily true, but he's trying to make a point. For instance, there are moments when he says, look, if your right eye offends you, if it causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, I haven't seen too many one-eyed Christians, so I don't think we take that very seriously. He all goes on to say, look, if your right arm causes you to sin, then cut it off. Jesus is using hyperbole to make a really bold statement. Stay in the light. If there's anything in your life that's pulling you away from the light, you need to get rid of it. And so each and every one of us have things that we've identified in our life that may be causing us issues. In your own life, maybe, maybe it's alcohol. And so you've had to make the decision in your own house, we're not going to have any of that in my house because it's the thing that causes me issues. I'm getting rid of it. I'm moving it out. 
Maybe for some of us, it's the type of television, the, the cable programming, the social networking that we have, that we watch often. Maybe it's causing you to veer away from how God's called us to live. And maybe it's a, a time to make a decision to do something different. Maybe that, that coworker is giving you some emotional outlet. There are work temptations that you've got to figure out. Okay, I need a new partner. I need to move to a different part of the company. I need to quit this job and find a new one because the temptation here is just too much. Rob and I have parameters in our own life and marriage as well. We have access to both of our phones and our laptops so that we can see who are you texting? Who are you talking to? What are you doing on social media? Who are you emailing? What's your, what's your inter- internet history look like? At the drop of the hat, we can ask each other for any one of those. I've got people around me who are watching me in ministry and I've asked them to because there are moments when I'm just wanting to be helpful and somebody else wants something different and my friend will tell me and the little alert goes off for them and they let me know. Oh, I, I didn't see it. I didn't know. We've got parameters around us. When our boys were home in junior high and high school, all of their social media accounts, their phones. We had access to all of those. That was part of the deal. If you want this, then we have to have the passwords and the codes so we can get in and, and take a look if, if it's necessary. Because see, church, at the bottom line, Satan wants you to hide. He wants to pull you out of the light. He wants to isolate you and not be accessible to other people. I mean, what would, what would David say about this very idea? He who writes about it in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word, I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do we live by God's word, church? Is that we get into God's word and we know God's word. And I'm so proud of this congregation that first uh, of the year that we decided as a church that we're going to read through God's word together. We're going to dig into those stories together. And I love having those conversations with you uh, throughout the course of the week about nuggets of things that we have overlooked in the past or had never read before. And how do, why do you think? And it's awesome conversations. And it reminds me that being in the word of God is so incredibly important because church, God's word will strengthen you, empower you, guide you, put light on your pathway. It's the blueprint for life. God's word is incredibly powerful and he won't let you fall. And we understand by looking at our story today that secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. Secrecy is the enemy of of intimacy. And so this morning is a call that we all would be committed to an open and truthful life with all of our relationships, but especially those that we've decided to marry and settle down with. We serve a God who is absolutely full of grace when we make poor decisions. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're stepping into some form of darkness, please consider and know that God loves you. And he wants you back in relationship. There is nothing that you can do that would make, you, make him love you any less than he does right now. Your God is in love with you. The writer of Proverbs chapter 28 says, people who conceal their sin will not prosper, 
But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. We're reminded that confession to God is for forgiveness and confession to each other is for healing. That in that process, we become people who are on the healing path when we make a decision to confess to one another. You ask God and he's going to forgive you. You ask those around you and the healing will begin. Some of you in this room are not married yet. And let me admonish you to find three or four people that you can put around you that will hold you accountable, that will ask you the tough questions that you can go to in a moment to say, hey, I need your help, I'm in trouble. You need those people around you. Healing cannot take place in the dark, only in the light of Jesus. And I know with what we're talking about today, there may be some couple in here that you know that there's something going on and that spouse is going to come to you at some point and be confessional. When that happens, my prayer is that you will have strength to hear that person out, that you will pray with them and walk with them, press through the pain of truth in order to have the peace of healing. It's so important that we live in the light church and not be drawn into the darkness. It's exactly where Satan wants you. There is life and life in the abundant when we decide to live that out with Jesus Christ. And so as we close our, our series today, I want to remind us that the very first thing that you and I have to make a decision to do is what we talked about week one, about primacy. That you and I will make a decision that God will be our one, that our spouse will be our two, that we'll always pursue our two just like Jesus has pursued us through all of time, that, that we'll make marriage about we and never about me, and that we'll pull ourselves back into the light and that we'll be people who confide in one another and not hide from one another. When we make a decision to live life just like that, your relationship will be the best it's ever been. And so as we sing this next song and our shepherds are gathered along the wall of this room, I wanna encourage you to seek one of those couples out. Let them pray for you and over you. Even if you have a great marriage, what an incredible opportunity for you to ask God to bless it even more. Don't hesitate, don't wait. Jesus loves you and he wants to give you the best life you've ever thought you possibly could have. And so together as the family of God, let's stand and praise his name together.